Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share, she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal Series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, Down There, Sexual and Reproductive Health, The Wise Woman Way. And Abundantly Well, Seven Medicines, The Wise Woman Way, the newest book in the Wise Woman Herbal Series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Needs, a cancer diagnosis, adaptogens for long life, and abundantly well companion course, wisewomanschool.com. You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Sarah Ellen. Hi, Susan. How are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm doing very well, and you? Oh, I'm also doing very well. Thanks. It rained. It is raining. It rained all day. Uh Yesterday it rained all day. 
day today. There's, of course, flood warnings. Ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody praying for rain. We all got our wish at once. Kaboom. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Wow. Happy rain. Happy, happy rain. We are so happy yeah. to have the rain. Mm. Oh, I'm so happy for you. That's so great that you get it before fall. Really? Really? So, you know, people are sighing and saying, ah, oh, maybe we'll be able to, you know, to harvest some of the fall crops. Because they, were, they mm. were really wondering if it was going to just be a complete bust. Oh, my but, goodness. Yeah, but now, of course, everything's kind of flooded, so we'll see maybe what little there is is going to rot. You know, it's just nature is never, like, really, you know, like anything less than blatant and over the top. Mm, mm. Right? Uh, that's, yeah. Oh, I, yeah. What's that that's saying? It thing. never rains, but it pours? Yes. <laughs> yep. Oh. Wow. How are things with you and your goats? Oh, things are really good with the goaties. And um, we actually um, took in two new goats. Uh, it just kind of came out of, um was a surprise. I considered it for a little bit. Um, but the woman who helped me find the buck um, needed to have a retirement home for two goats. And um, we decided we would do it. So it's been interesting. They, they're they really sweet. They seem um, really happy to be here and um, join their new space. They have not been integrated with our herd yet. So um, it's been fun and interesting. The, each goat has such a different personality. Yes. Oh, my gosh, that is so true. I mean, I knew it to be true of ours that have been here, you know, with us long enough for me to know them. But just upon meeting these two, their mother and daughter, and um, they definitely have different personalities. They're very sweet, but um, the mother seems more outgoing. and um, But the daughter is very friendly, too. Um, but just definitely different personalities. They're, um, she's 10, and the daughter, I think, is 6. So, definitely interesting. <laughs> Either one of them giving milk? No, they um, weaned the daughter before, or, or they dried up the daughter before um, they rehomed her here. Um, and then the mother it hasn't had kids in a while. Apparently, both of them have had notorious difficult births so they decided that it wasn't a good idea to have any more kids with them so are they small no they're just difficult labors so um, there's usually the need to get a vet involved and there have been like quite a few miscarriages and then um, one of the kids um died, you know, I don't know if it was just one, but there have been, and one of the moms died giving birth, not these, obviously, but somewhere in between generations, between the 10-year-old and the 6-year-old. So 
they had decided they just weren't going to breed that line anymore. They don't have horns. They're 4-H goats. Um, so it's, yeah. That would be a little hard integrating goats. into your herd of horn goats. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm grateful that the, our lead goat does not have horns. And she's the mom of ah. the two. Yes. So I think that is going to be a big help. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope. I, I hope. I agree. So. It will be. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the so. unhorn will outnumber the horns. <laughs> Especially, yeah, in terms of age and rank, in terms of, yeah, right. knowing what they're doing. Because all my others are so young. They're, they're pretty goofy and malleable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. How about you? What's happening? Oh, we had a great work weekend. Oh, we got just a lot of stuff done. We elected to work out in the rain yesterday. It was what we call the Seattle rain. Mm. <clears throat> the air was indeed absolutely full of moisture. And it was, in fact, actually, you know, falling to the ground, but it wasn't really like raindrops. Okay. You could walk in it and not get wet, in a way. We even nice. harvested some shisandra and made some shisandra tincture. Oh, wow. Wow. You have me so excited about Shisandra. I ordered some seeds with one of the gifts that you gifted me in May, and I'm so excited about that. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, how'd your tincture, like, how much did you make? Did you make a, I got a good bit of it, huh? Yes, Yvette came over, and she said she made two pints, and I made two quarts. And there's probably enough yeah. Shisandra out there for another, like, gallon or gallon and a half of remedies. They're so abundant. Oh. There's a real light in here where there's very little fruit because of the drought that the Shisandra, I think because if it's, you recall, it has a relationship with the peach tree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the peach yeah. tree, I think, has kept it happy even during this Aww. time of little or no water. The peach actually uh, didn't flower, or if it did, um, our late frost took off the flower, so we didn't expect any peaches this year, nor would I have, given that we got so many peaches last year. Mm. So it's really more like a shisandra tree than a peach tree. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) How fun. How fun. What about the tomato? Is that making it? The big the tomato plant? The, the tomato, the, the endurable, invincible tomato is still hanging in there, yep. Oh, wow. We got a little blighted. Wow. I took some blighted parts off. It's still making a tomato now and then. Oh, my. I'm really wow. enjoying it. Our oh, guest my. tonight is Misa Hopkins. And she has... Um, been a best-selling author six times. What? Six times for what? Well, she has healed herself from chronic and incurable conditions with unshakable self-love. And she's going to tell us how to have 
Unshakable Self-Love. That's at 9 o'clock East Coast time. Stay with us or come on back and hear Missa Hopkins talk about Unshakable Self-Love. Anything else you want to talk about before we get into the other people's questions? Um, We've got three hands raised, so we go to that. Okay, I'll remind everyone, listen, you've got a question tonight and want us to see your hand raised with you. Uh, press number one so that your hand goes up and you'll be placed in the line in the queue. The first caller is dialed in from the 352 area code. From the 352, you are live with Susan. Hello, Susan. How are you? Wonderful. How about you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. I have a question for you tonight. Um, okay. I'm, I'm doing, doing a class on fertility awareness, and we talk, you've talked a lot about estradiol. Estradiol is the, uh-huh. as it is the kerosene, as it is fire. Is that the hormone that is released with the LH surge? And I'm assuming you know what I'm talking about. Like my under- my understanding is that it is the production of estradiol or estradiol, same stuff, by hormonal glands in the brain that triggers the luteinizing hormone cascade. You mean in the um, hypothalamus? I believe that the trigger for estradiol is the pineal because it is so you unlike, said it only comes out. Of, it is sorry. primarily light sensitive, and it's only present generally for twenty-four to thirty-six hours. And that would be at what stage of the twenty-eight day cycle, in relation to what? When is it getting released during the? I'm assuming the luteal phase, but it's not released. only released for 20 Not released. You keep saying released. It's not released. All right. Released All right. is like some estradiol somewhere being stored, and we're going to open the tank and let some out. Not what happens. But I'm thinking more about the release of the ovum out of the, than well, the corpus luteum. If you'd let me get there, I would explain it to you, but you keep interrupting me every time I try to do it. My apologies. That's okay. So, the production of estradiol by hormonal glands triggers follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH. Follicle-stimulating hormone does exactly what it says. It stimulates follicles in the ovaries to become eggs. What stimulates estradiol? What stimulates estradiol? Yes. Light. Like melatonin, also made in the brain, it's a light-sensitive hormone. Without electric lights, 
women ovulate at the full moon. So the full moon triggers the pineal, which actually registers that light, to make a stradiol. The production of stradiol triggers the production of follicle-stimulating hormone. That triggers the A. Stop interrupting me. You said you were going to stop. Should be that. I'm sorry. The FSH triggers the ripening of the follicles into eggs. Human eggs are the opposite of the eggs you're used to eating. The yellow is on the outside and the white is on the inside. So when the egg leaves the ovary, it leaves behind the yellow body. Lutein is Latin for yellow. Lutinizing hormone is produced by the yellow body, which is left behind as the egg ovulates out of the ovary. Lutinizing hormone, in its turn, causes progesterone to be made. Pro for gestation. For gestation, progesterone causes a thickening as of the endometrium so that it becomes more blood-filled, lusher, more velvety. Mm-hmm. If indeed one of the ovulated eggs meets a sperm and is fertilized, then it has a place in the endometrium where it will nestle in in the progesterone for gestation. Make sure that that is a gestated pregnancy. If the egg is not fertilized, then when it gets to the uterus, it doesn't burrow in. The signals stop. We stop making progesterone, and the lining of the uterus is shed as menstruation. From ovulation until menstruation is a set period of 13 days. The time between menstruation and ovulation can vary. Okay. I like the um, analogy of the inside-out egg. Yeah. So luteinizing hormone is just one of the many players. And interestingly enough, during menopause, this cycle goes on overdrive. And you make more and more and more follicle-stimulating hormone. And it's one of the reasons for a lot of the physical symptoms of menopause. Right, you're just, in general, flooded with a lot more hormones. Somebody estimated 40 to 60 times more hormones during the years of menopause than at any other time, even when we're pregnant. Remarkable. Yeah. So keep that liver in good shape so that liver can deal with hormones. 
good advice. So what happens what happens when estradiol is produced and you said it's like kerosene to fire is your body temperature goes up, right? That's correct. It really is. It really is fire. That is. That's a good point. Ah, nice connection. Thanks. That's good. So, so the estradiol is connected to the FSH. Estradiol causes FSH to be made. Okay, I hear you. I'm listening. That's why you don't ovulate after menopause because you stop making estradiol. Uh-huh, uh-huh. No, uh, no FSH. And that's saving many women's lives. Menopause exactly. saves women's lives. Right? And no FSH, no luteinizing hormone, no luteinizing hormone, no progesterone, no progesterone, no menstruation. Wow, you're post-menopause. And hence, you are now normal. Uh, no, that's a relative concept, but still, I mean... <laughs> it, uh, the, uh, the normal for the butterfly, the emergence of the metamorphosis. Um, that's, that's, I appreciate that explanation. Thank you so much for that. You're Question so welcome. Blessings. And my thanks to the entomologist, to the butterfly experts, who said, well, you know, it's not just that the caterpillar melts down into black goo and then forms itself into a butterfly from that. But, in fact, in most cases, after it has made itself into a butterfly, it says, maybe that wasn't quite right, and it turns itself back into black goo and tries it again. Wow, that's a uh, lot. Oh, but the wow. black goo, I was okay. wondering, so how about that moon cycle? Oh, no, you know, that, okay, you know, just because you've, like, gotten yourself into a butterfly... You might still be going back to black goo. It's possible. It's a very Don't despair. Don't despair. Um. Now, with that black, like I'm learning and working on presenting a class on, you know, the fertility cycle, which I've done, but the moon cycle, and then also in the cycle of the butterfly, the, there's three stages, you know, luteinal phases. The moon, the cocoon butterfly metamorphosis occurs during a particular moon cycle. It's completely unrelated, but it was a thought that came to me. I bet you could find out. I bet I could. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time. Green blessings. Good night. Green blessings. Good night. All right, and looks like there is one caller that has just one to signal that they have a question. So I'll remind everyone listening, if you've got a question, do remember to press the number one. And our next caller is dialed in from the 603 area code. From the 603, you are live with Susan. Hey, Susan. It's Rose calling. Hi, Rose. How are you tonight? Hi. Well, I have not been doing well at all, and... um. Please excuse me. I'm very um, foggy. I've, my condition has worsened greatly. <coughs> mm, I'm sorry to hear that. You sound a little breathless. 
Well, I'm very nervous in actually talking to you because I'm not thinking very clearly because I'm not sleeping again, and um, my brain just is not working how, how, it, how it should be. But I want to ask you some things, and um, I just want you to be gentle with me because um, I'm at a very bad place right now because um, what has been happening to my physical health as well as dealing with my severe scoliosis, the pain has worsened terribly as well. So um, I just wanted to preface that, okay, because I'm, I'm uh, not in a very good, I'm in a very dark place right now because I'm so hurting and not sleeping and have had a lot of gut issues. So what I did was I want to fill you in because I've been following you, as you know, for quite some time, and I've, you know, been sticking with what, you know, your suggestions and stuff. However, I do have a question regarding um, the infusions because um, I ended up having, I ended up choosing to go because I was having so many problems with my intestinal situation. Um, so I finally got tested by a gastroenterologist and some different tests. And because I don't have my brain, and you probably aren't interested in the test that he did, but by doing different testing, um, he, um, he, he discovered things um, that are present in my small intestine and uh, throughout my, <clears throat> my colon that should not, bad, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> bad bacteria and fungus that should not be there and, you know, not so much of the good ones that are supposed to be there without going into a lot of detail, um, I have started going on a low FODMAP diet. And uh, I, I, because I'm on this, this low FODMAP diet, I just started it um, a week ago. And um, I, because it's very limited, um, for those callers who are listening, um, the FODMAP diet, stand, it's an acronym, for um, fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and, and I don't know how to pronounce the last one, but it's polyols or P-O-L-Y-O-L-S. But essentially, those are lots of different types of sugars. But I have um, learned um, that, uh, you know, by from him and a nutritionist he sent me to, um, and also, just tonight before calling you, because I'm so nervous um, right now and have a lot of anxiety um, about um, calling in, um, you know, looking at what Cleveland Clinic says, and you know, but I, but but otherwise, I've just been listening to the nutritionist who um, who connected me with the um, Monash FODMAP app, M-O-N-A-S-H. So my question to you is. I, because the only drinks that it says I need to stick with because so many food, oh, this, this um, Monash FODMAP app tells you, lists, you know, all the, most of the foods that have been tested, like, over the years, and it lists high FODMAP foods, medium FODMAP foods, and those that are high FODMAP. So, of course, I have to keep my FODMAP foods as low as possible because that's what's aggravating uh, and causing uh, all these all these uh, bad things happening in my small intestine. That's why it's called um, SIBO, small intestinal um, bacterial overgrowth. 
And as well as that, I also have an intestinal, uh, uh, a quite severe uh, fungal infection. So he's addressing the first four to six months um, the FODMAPs and uh, to deal with the SIBO. Uh, so on that diet, I don't know because uh, the nutritionist has no idea because, of course, she doesn't know about these infusions, whether linden blossoms, comfrey, nettle, oat straw, red clover, whether those are high in FODMAPs or not. So that's my question to you because what's listed on the diet um, uh, of low FODMAPs, FODMAPs is green tea, and I know you're a supporter of that. And um, the other thing, uh, let's see, because my memory um, is, is green tea and black tea and um, not, not much else. Could you repeat? Could you tell me again, are those high FODMAP or low FODMAP foods? Uh, black tea and green tea. Black oh, tea and green tea. Those are the low. Black tea and green tea are low FODMAP. FODMAP, yeah, those are the ones that I am Those eating. are low FODMAP, then all the infusions are low FODMAP. Oh, really? Yes. Because the gastroenterologist has no clue, the nutritionist has no clue, because I well, I'm telling you that okay, closest thing would be a water-based infusion of a dried plant leaf, which is tea. Right. Okay, yes. Right? That makes sense. That's what you're doing. You're making a water-based infusion of a dried plant leaf. Yes. Most FODMAPs are in roots and seeds. Well, I was astonished. They're in fruits, yeah. so many which fruits. would include things you might think of as vegetables, like tomatoes are considered a fruit. So but grains, some... grains and beans can have FODMAPs, but leaves rarely do. Leaves really do? Rarely do. Have FODMAPs or do not? Do not. They do not. rarely have them. What is? What are some other low FODMAP foods that you're being encouraged to eat? Oh my gosh, it is amazing because I look on. I look. I have to look up every food that I want to eat to see whether it's. Well, I'm supposed to avoid. All the brassica, brassica vegetables. I'm asking you not to tell me what you're avoiding. I'm asking you to tell me what yes. you can eat. Okay, so I need to find that list because, I, as I said, I'm not thinking very clearly. So I'm, I'm, I, I have it here uh, because she has gave me a list of foods to avoid. How much fiber? Low FADMOP diet checklist. So this is a checklist of the things that are low. Um, and then Good. I have another let's one. Hear, let's, that, hear, let's hear the first 20 or so of those. Well, this is simply the, the shopping list, so I don't know if it's better for, for you to, for me to read from the low FODMAP plate. So in other words, yeah. this divides it into categories, so maybe this might be easier for you, for me to read to you, because I don't, okay. you know. I, so the low FODMAP plate has which categories? Well, it just, it just separates them. It says healthy fats. Olive oil, grapeseed oil, walnut oil, and avocado oil. Those are the only ones I am allowed. It has nothing to do with infusions, does it? 
Oh, no, 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 no. But I'm You're asking me to compare infusions. I'm asking you to give me some information. Fats, this has nothing to do with it, please. Okay. Well, that's the thing, because the only uh, dried herbs that they say I Not can have... Not asking about dried herbs. Okay. I don't think I can go any further in this conversation because I cannot get my questions answered. I'm asking you to tell me 20 low-FODMAP foods. Please, now. Okay. All right. And I don't want them to be oil. I want to know, is zucchini, is tomatoes, is corn, is green beans? Please. Is tuna fish, is brown rice, is pasta? Can you please name some foods that are low-FODMAP? Okay, well, they're not, okay. So I'll start with the, it's divided into vegetables and herbs and then fruits and all the other food groups. So I would start with the fruits. Um, avocado, uh, these are the low FODMAP diet checklist, but they're still limited, keep in mind. So I can have a little bit of avocado, a little bit of banana, banana uh, blueberries, cantaloupe, clementine, Is there coconut. anything that you can have a lot of? No. Nothing. No, you can't have a lot of anything because, yeah, that's, that's what's amazing. I mean, I was amazed when I look at this. this Tell me uh, about some of the herbs that they have. Well, I'm trying to find those. Um, uh, uh, that would be like things like parsley. Uh, there's not too many that, are, that are, have been tested, I guess, so that's the problem. Uh, par- so if parsley is okay, then stinging nettle is okay. If parsley is okay, then comfrey is okay. Parsley, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm doing this from memory. I wish I could. See, I didn't know what you were going to ask me. Maybe I need to get back to you so I don't waste your time. Um, because if you can give me, so, yeah, because. Well, I've already given you the answer. Okay. So, Which so is that the, what herbal, infu- what the herbal infusions are exactly the same as green or black tea. Okay. And okay. you just told me that green and black tea is low in FODMAP? Yes. 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 So. Okay. So that's all, that's, I guess. That's true. I'm going to go with that. Okay. Okay. Right. Alrighty. And I would suggest that you do too and not get um, so... Um, I always like it when people focus on things they can eat. Here's a list of low FODMAP things. Arugula, Asian greens, collard greens, green beans, bell peppers, broccoli, cabbage, carrots, celery, celery root, chard, cucumbers, eggplant, endive, fennel, ginger, kale, lettuce, mushrooms, okra, potatoes, pumpkins, squash, radishes, rhubarbs, onions, seaweed, spinach, tomatoes, turnips, rutabagas, yams, and zucchinis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a big, long list of vegetables, which again would strongly indicate to me that all of the infusions are just fine. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, um, also, I hear you, Susan, I do. Um, 
um, and I even see mint listed here. The thing is, they are they are in very limited quantities, so I don't know if one ounce, because a lot of these things I can't even have an ounce. It's like a you know a tenth of an ounce. So I don't know if one what ounce. What I am saying what? is you're wrong. First of okay. all, you're actually wrong. But I don't. It's your list of low fodmet foods, and you enjoy them. Low fodmet food, you're allowed to have really in just about any quantity you want. As long as they're under. Oh, what I neglected to tell you, and this is my fault. I can have them amount, but, but they must be spread out between the three to four meals a day, whatever I eat, because if I eat too many at once, that's what's going to uh, upset things. You know this? Is this a fact? You keep telling me these things, but I don't see any evidence for this. You know, I understand this diet. I understand the damage this diet does, both psychological and physical. Yeah, that's what I wanted to hear from you. It is really not a diet for health. It is a last-ditch effort to, excuse me for being blunt, cater to people with digestive problems. Okay. And the fact of the matter is that slippery elm and marshmallow and eating a well-cooked diet of good quality food will always restore digestive health. Even SIBO. And of yes, course, I've been on, especially I've been on... SIBO. Okay. okay. SIBO, Crohn's disease, everything that I've seen, and over and over again, I see people go on these diets, and they get paranoid, and they stop eating, and their health is so decayed that they can't exercise, which then further decays their health, and it's just, to me, the first step in the downward spiral. Mm-hmm. Well, in my case, Susan, uh, now, I... Now, if you're saying to me, Susan, I got a list of low food map foods, and I've been doing that for two weeks now, and I'm completely symptom-free, no, that would be different. But that's not what you're saying. What I'm hearing is fear and stress. And fear and stress make all digestive issues worse. Fear and stress are the root causes of digestive issues. Yeah. So, um, and maybe now you have a big diagnosis that you can use for fear and stress and a big, hard-to-follow, impossible-to-be-healthy-on diet plan, which you're going to make even more difficult by pretending that you can't have, basically, you know, with few exceptions, as much fruits and vegetables as you want. Mm-hmm. And that means all the nourishing herbal infusions that you want. Uh-huh. Well, could you give me, uh, because I've been taking a lot of slippery elm for the last couple of years, uh, uh-huh. some marshmallow. Well, then what way are you taking this slippery elm? Well, I've been, I've been following your, your balls, you know, your slippery elm, You're and putting it. Uh-huh. And when do you take this? Oh, 
Oh, I, I've tried it, like taking it all the time round the clock. I mean, put it like all the time around. And what happened when you did that? Um, really, not much, of, not much of anything. But what I found, I, I don't know what uh, made this uh, get terribly worse. But suddenly, my my production of methane gas due to this um, wrong bacteria that in, in my gut when I finally got tested. The methane, and like I said, I can't, I can't read you the, the details because it's in the report. But um, um, I've just been so, so fatigued. And at that point, I was not at all anxious because I just got, I just started this just um, this past Monday, and this is only what this is only Wednesday. Tuesday. And I just found out you about it. Just so, um, you started just I started today. Monday. I started Monday. Monday and I was just today. Oh, wait a minute. What's this is Tuesday. Tuesday. Oh, today's is just Tuesday. Tuesday. I'm sorry. I found okay. yes. I I'm sorry. I found out last Monday. That's right. See, I'm so confused. Last Monday, so I've been okay. on. I but I actually didn't go on the diet because it it took a lot of you know looking into it first. So I actually didn't start it until Saturday. So Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. So three days. But um, yeah. But um, you know, just I've been just farting so so much. It's it's just mm-hmm. any time I ate anything, you know, and I've been of course on the infusions daily, alternating. I've just everything I ate just turned to gas. I mean, I just didn't know what else to do. So I, you know, finally went to the gastroenterologist, and um, so he he said this is a better way to do it than on anti than on antibiotics because antibiotics you know, can really mess up your gut more. And I've had antibiotics in the past for Lyme and other things, and, and I've had a lifetime of, um, of um, fungus. And the I, website that is uh, Diet Versus Disease, I know nothing about it, um, but it has a fabulous list of low-fibat foods and high-fibat foods and basically, low FODMAP is blueberries, grapes, lemons, limes, oranges, passion fruit, raspberries, strawberries, not bad. Low FODMAP cereals, grains, amaranth, arrowroot, I love arrowroot, true sourdough bread with no added yeast, buckwheat flour, cornflakes, tortillas, rice krispies, tapioca, teff, right, wheatgrass powder, low FODMAP, all the infusions are, have with wheatgrass, less possibility of having FODMAPs and wheatgrass powder. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Right, low-FODMAP low foods, rice noodles, quinoa, polenta, lots of stuff. Low-FODMAP cheese, cottage cheese, ricotta. Low FODMAP, chicken, lamb, pork, turkey, fish, eggs, lentils, lima beans. Well, the only beans that they say I can have. Again, again what I suggest you do is yep. print out lists of low FODMAP foods I do have them and in make the- your diet of those foods. Okay. Okay. I don't know if you remember ever hearing me say that when I got started being interested in nutrition, U.S. Department of Agriculture, handbook number, Composition of Foods. It's a fairly big book. And I spent a lot of time with it. I teased that I slept with that book. 
And I read that book with a marker. And instead of saying, oh, what is in corn, I said, what is high in calcium? And I went with my marker and I marked right down the column of calcium every high number. And then I might go back and say, all right, well, what's what's rich in B vitamins? And I took a different color marker and I would just go right down the column and mark all the high numbers for B vitamins. And by the time I had spent months doing this, my book was pretty marked up. And I could see then that there were certain foods that had all the marks. And I made for myself a list of those foods. And made my bit of those foods. Nowadays, we would call those nutrient-dense foods. We would call those high antioxidant foods. But it's quite possible and easy for any one of us to make a list of foods, that's our diet, and not be paranoid about the other stuff. Just make a list of what you can eat and eat that. I didn't have to worry about what I wasn't going to eat. Right. Yes, you've spoken right. about that a lot. Yeah. yeah. Just, and yes, from every indication, I see nothing that in any way would indicate there's anything in the nourishing herbal infusions that would ha- cause it to be high in FODMAPs. Yep. 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 They're dried okay. leaves. And dried leaves, so far as I can tell, are just fine. It's not like their roots or drugs. Right, right, right. Because you do, you do agree. People don't know about herbs. That's okay that they don't know, but you don't have to take on their paranoia. Yeah. Well. He's been helping people with this diet for 22 years, and he said it's better than going on antibiotics, which I don't want to do. I didn't uh, say he wasn't helping people. I said you don't have to take on their paranoia. Exactly. I I do hear you, and I think you. Their paranoia is not what's helping people. Yeah. The paranoia about herbs is not helping people. So please don't conflate those things. Right? When I say it's okay that they don't know about herbs, and you tell me he's been helping people for 22 years, it sounds like what you're saying is that ignorance of herbs helps people. Yeah, I hear, I hear you. I hear you. Well, that's, I thank you. That's yes. simply not true. He can help people and be ignorant of herbs, and that's okay. I'm not putting him down for that. But what I'm saying is you have a choice to pay attention to someone who actually has devoted her life to herbs and knows about herbs and has just gone to a website, looked at FODMAP foods, talked to you about it, and is giving you the all clear or to take on the paranoia of someone who knows nothing about herbs by their own ambition. Can you tell me which website you went to so I can check that same one? I already did tell you that website. Let me see if it's still up. I mean the FODMAP one. was there. I went to Cleveland Clinic, and mm-hmm. it is dietversusdisease.org. Diet versus disease. Dietvsdisease.org. Not disease. Well, thank you. Yes. Thank, thank you very much, Diet, and I Disease.org. You are welcome, Rose. I hope that you are in less pain the next time we talk. Green blessings.
Much being blessings to you, too. Good night. Good night. All right, and there are two callers that have raised their hand by pressing 1. And our next caller has dialed in from the 808 area code. From the 808, you are live with Susan. And hello, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Enjoying the rain, so enjoying the rain. Good, me too. I'm calling about a long-standing chronic inflammation in my sinus cavity, my ear, and was swelling around my left eye, and I can't really pinpoint how to help it. Sometimes it really hurts and bothers me and other times it doesn't. Um, I feel like it's mold um, or some kind of I don't know. I, it's just it's very palpable and I can feel it and it definitely my ear like pops every time I swallow. It feels like there's fluid and sometimes it goes away depending on like get energy work or body work, like it's definitely a very subtle energetic issue. But at the same time, you know, I do herbal infusions. I eat really close to the land. I've done elimination diets. I've done full-on full nourishing traditions, fats, butters, raw milk, um, meat, you know. And I've never really noticed any change. I've had um, an MRI. I've had one physician say there's like a fungal pocket that needs to be removed. I've had another physician say it doesn't need to be removed. Nothing. It will just come right back. Um, And yeah, I'm just Someone said you should call Susan Reed on Tuesday night and ask what what she thinks. Well, let's ask ourselves what in general is the result of surgery when we're not absolutely certain that the surgery is going to have an impact on what's happening? I don't feel called to um, pursue any surgical route. Yeah. So we can just set that aside then, and I think without any fear that we're harming you or that you're um, you know, not really taking care of yourself. I think you're taking excellent care of yourself. So there's a thing that happens in your ear and your jaw that comes and goes, and it's been there for how long? I feel like since 2012. So for about 10 years. Yeah. 
Was there any particular thing that happened when it started? Um, I became, I think I was living in a really moldy cabin. Um, I wasn't conscious or aware of, like, mold at that time in my life, looking out for it. But looking back on it, I think it happened then, and I wasn't, I was working a lot, and I wasn't sleeping enough um, for a short period while I was living out there, and that I started to quit. But once I I finished that job and had a normal sleep schedule again, um, the twitching went away and the swelling, but then it just kind of came back, yeah. And I think I got some sort of, like, fungal mold spore, something that never quite left. And it got stronger for sure. Like, I never, I felt it really strongly um, after an ayahuasca ceremony. And I don't know if I was just numb prior to that, and then afterwards I could feel everything a lot more intensely or more deeply. But that's when it became noticeable to an extent that I, that was like 2015, that I was like, what is wrong? And um, Does it yeah. hurt? Um, it's a pressure. I wouldn't call it painful. It's a strong pressure. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> in general, we tend to take an adversarial position with our bodies. as though our bodies are out to get us. And we have to fight back. We can always ask ourselves if what's going on with our body might be right. And to go with it in more of, shall we say, an Aikido fashion. Rather than countering ourselves and our bodies to see if we can't in some way understand the wisdom that is our homeless and our corporal being. One way to do that is to ask ourselves what the problem with the problem is. Is there a problem with this problem? It makes me self-conscious. It makes you self-conscious. Excellent yeah, answer. Yeah, like a, a visible yeah. swelling, and it, it definitely like makes me shy. I feel like it really makes you self-conscious. It makes you shy. Mm-hmm. It makes yeah. you think you look disfigured. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's and work with those. Let's work with those three things. So it's almost inevitable, given what we've asked, that we're going to get answers from the victim. 
it it makes me disfigured, it makes me shy, you know. Oh, you know, it makes me so self-conscious. Very victim statements, right? So what would those statements be if they were said by a person of power? The person of power is not going to contradict. How would we make the statement, it makes me shy, a statement of power? Um, I could be bolder. That's arguing. The statement of power comes from agreement. I want to feel shy. I want to feel socially uncomfortable, want to feel disfigured. Now, on the surface of it, these are horrible things to say. And insofar as they repel you and cause you to draw away, they are true. Because we are, as human beings, people of many wishes and desires. And often, we have thrown wishes and desires that we have had into the dungeon and starved them. And they come to us asking only to be acknowledged and to be fed. Let me give you a kind of funny example of this. I realized that I kept ending relationships because people were telling me what to do and I don't like to be told what to do. Well, at least that's what I was saying. But when I asked myself to make that not a statement of a victim, but a statement of power, I said, all right, so I like to be told what to do. How can I satisfy this part of myself that wants to be told what to do? And I said, well, you know, you go to a yoga class, really devote yourself at the yoga class to doing exactly as you were told to do. And it was so satisfying and so rich and so relaxing to have that hour, hour and 15 minutes where I didn't have to make any decisions. I only had to do what I was told to do. And I no longer needed to attract people into my life to tell me what to do because I was satisfying that for myself. It's okay to have a part of ourselves that feels self-conscious, that feels shy, that feels disfigured. Is there some other way to take that part of yourself out of it and to honor it besides having this particular problem? that may not be something you can immediately answer. And sometimes the answer comes through dreams. And sometimes it just takes spending a little time walking around saying, I want to be shy. I want to be self-conscious. I want 
there to be something wrong with me. And to really be compassionate enough to love that part of yourself, those parts of yourself too. Thank you. The only path, the only path I know of to miracle cures. You're welcome. Dream blessings. Good night. Good night. All right, and I'll remind everyone listening, if you've got a question for Susan this evening, you need to press 1 so that we can see your hand go up in the queue. At this time, we have one caller that has pressed 1, and you've dialed in from the 352. Um, did you have another question from the 352? Hi, Susan. I was calling to see how you're healing from your surgery, and how is your cancer doing? It's long gone. Oh, God. They ripped that thing out of me, and we have not seen one hide nor hair of it since. That was two and a half years ago. Word cancer is not even in my vocabulary anymore. I refused all their scans, their (coughs) follow-up. They got clear margins. There was not a single cell in any lymph node, even the lymph nodes right up against the lymph node that had cancer in it. So I am doing, you know, the work of getting myself back together, which means that I'm doing yoga every week. I, I know you know that I did uh, started doing my yoga class again. They let me out of the hospital on Tuesday, and my regular yoga class is Wednesday, and I was at yoga class. I'd just been out of surgery two weeks, and now I slept through that yoga class, but I was there. So right. it's yoga is my that. practice, and I do my do my yoga right, every Wednesday. Justine and I have been going to uh, Silver Sneakers Yoga class, which is a lot of fun, on Fridays. Well, mostly upper body work, which is great. And um, I do my Tai Chi. I walk. I walk between two and four miles every day. I drink nourishing herbal infusions. I eat a superb diet. I have uh, regular massages. I get a regular energy tune-up. I um, have somebody who does a a special um, constructive body work. I meditate. I work with um, someone who does a realization process on a regular basis. So there's not a day that goes by that I am not taking care of myself to be abundantly well. Thanks for asking. Is this podcast still serving you? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I generally get in about a mile or so of walking during the podcast. Of course, it's not a podcast for me, right? And I told my daughter, I said, you know, this podcast is a great idea. It has probably gotten me in bed with more women than at any other time in my life. <laughs> Brilliant. I know where people well, listen make sure. to podcast. All right. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, Francis. I mean, I just wanted to see how you're doing. All righty. You take care then. Green blessings. Good night. Great. 
Dream Blessings. All right, and we have another hand that has been raised by pressing that number one from the 503. You are live with Susan from the 503. Hello? Hi. Hi. Hi, my name's Sky. With or without an E? With an E, thank you for asking. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk about my son, if that's all right. Well, how old he is he? He's uh, 0.75. He'll be three Thanksgiving. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes, you may be and, his son. Okay, wonderful. He, and the question, I mean, I don't even have a specific question. I, I want to get your perspective, and it might even be more about about me and my thoughts and feelings really in the end, but I do want to know how to support him. He has a genetic condition called neurofibromatosis type 1 or NF1, which I had never heard of before we found out he had it. It's pretty rare. And he also has a pretty rare presentation of it um, involving um, some tibial dysplasia in his lower leg. So, okay, so NF1 is a a genetic condition that causes um, tumors throughout the nervous system throughout one's life. And they're just, uh, they're usually benign. They can be painful. They can be unsightly if they grow on the face. They can cause all kinds of different problems. I'm, I haven't even, I, I don't even know all the kinds of problems they could cause. But so far, he has this tibial dysplasia in his leg, so he wears a, a brace over his ankle and his foot, um, an AFO, which is challenging, of course, for a two-year-old. And then he also, um, we just recently found out, has um, optic nerve glioma or optic pathway glioma, which is something else that can happen with NF1 patients, and it causes, um, he has tumors, brain tumors, throughout his optic nerve, um, and this has a chance of um, causing blindness, so he could need chemotherapy for that. Um, yeah, gliomas can be particularly nasty. Right. Right, and it, it, the thing that's, scared me the most is it it could be um, almost more, well, I don't know. I don't know what's scaring me the most, but it could be affecting his endocrine system too, based on where the, where the tumors are. Um, so let me uh, ask he had to, I, yeah. I really hear you when you say what's scaring yeah. you, but I want to ask you how that helps your son for you to be scared. It doesn't. So cut it out. It really doesn't. It doesn't. It I'm doesn't sorry, what help. Was that? It doesn't yeah. help you. No. And it doesn't help your son. And mm-hmm. it doesn't help really anything at all, does it? <laughs> no. To be scared. No. Being scared will not stop him from going blind if that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Being scared will not stop him from dying if that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. 
or but losing his leg. Scared, but being scared can stop you from being there for him when he's scared. Mm-hmm. We've all been present when a toddler wants something and mom says no, and the toddler has fit. And mom says, if you don't stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. And we've all thought, kids are already crying. What do you mean, give the kids something to cry about? Kids are already crying. Mm-hmm. So my teacher says, what's going on there is that mom is crying. Mom wants to scream her head off. Mom didn't know it was going to be like this. And when the kids start screaming, just to really clamp down. So that she doesn't start screaming. Insofar as you're afraid, you will not be able to tolerate your child's fear. And your child is going to have fear. Mm-hmm. Right, so you I think about that a lot. Find, <laughs> you need to find ways now to comfort yourself so that you can mm-hmm. be there as a comfort for your child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you can't stop what's going on. Right, it's it's genetic. It's not like, like you're being what negligent. What can I do to support <laughs> Right. What can you do to support him? Is figure out the way through your own fear mm-hmm. into the greatest loving kindness that you can muster. Mm-hmm. I do feel really strong, you know, when we're in the midst. He had to have an MRI and he had to be sedated, sedated to have the MRI. And and he'll have to have another MRI. <laughs> and um, I know you talk a lot of, on this show about, um, you know, saying no to tests and interventions. Um, if they're not needed. I, if they're not needed, but I can't, I can't say no to, to, to this, to these MRIs at this point. I'm going to stay present, but right now, I'm going to do what the um, oncologist mm-hmm. wants to do. So what I want you to understand mm-hmm. is that your child is furious with you. Really? Of course, wouldn't you be? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. He's too... He's two. That's exactly what I mean. He's two. <laughs> okay. He doesn't, he doesn't have any conceptual sense. All he knows is that you are bringing him to places where people do painful things mm. to him. Right. Yeah, right? People mess with him. And we live People mess with him and you bring him there. Yeah. He hates you. Uh-huh. And he loves you. Uh-huh. And he's completely dependent on you, which makes him hate you even more. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, the fact that it's so you need to be able to tolerate it. Really is that. my fault. <laughs> yeah. 
you need to be able to tolerate all those feelings from your child Mm. and to let them Mm -hmm. be okay, to say, yes, you need to hate me. You go right ahead and hate me. Mm -hmm. I understand. I am doing hateful things. Mm-hmm. But you see no way to say no, so you are going to do those hateful things. That's okay. There's no blame attached to that. By getting the blame out of the way, we can stand in being responsible. I am responsible for the fact that I am taking my child to a place where they hurt my child. Where they do mm-hmm. things that my child does not want done. Mm-hmm. Right. And that part of you doesn't want done either, but you don't see any way to say no. And I'm not saying you should. Right. Again, we are complex beings. Right. So you can both, I... you know, not want to take your child there and take your child there. There were many days when I walked to my radiation treatment when every step of the way I said, turn around, go back, turn around, go back. This is killing you, killing you. Turn around, go back. Don't do this. Mm-hmm. And step after step, I'm getting closer and closer. <laughs> right? And sometimes you just have to live with that level of dissonance. Dissonance, yep. That's a good word. Yeah. And say, okay. Yeah. I absolutely understand, right? I do, I, right now, I'm just going to do what they tell me to do, even if my child and my inner sense says no, nonetheless, I'm doing it. Right. Right. You don't have to shut up your inner sense or your child. Mm-hmm. They can still say no. You say, I hear you. You're saying mm-hmm. no. We're doing it anyhow. Mm-hmm. And there's only a 50% chance that he would need chemotherapy. And, yeah, I guess I'll just I'll try not to worry about that right now. And we'll just... Worry is not going to make any difference, will it? Right. Neither yeah. worry nor fear is going to change anything at all. Yeah. I know. I wake up in the middle of the night thinking, like, okay, next time he has the MRI, I'm going to make sure that he's more hydrated. They don't have to poke him as many times. And, like, you know, thoughts that aren't useful in the middle of the night. So, yep, you're right on. So what can you think instead? I love my son. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really feel that and emanate that. Mm Mm-hmm. And take that time of being awake to be a beacon of love to your son. Yeah. You'll yeah, feel it. You. You'll feel it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm saying. The fear and the worry cut you off from being able to give. Right. <laughs> it's really not useful to you or your son. Right. Any of it. I'm all for anything that's useful. And if worrying would change any outcome at all, I'd say let's go for it. But I have never once seen worry be effective. Have <laughs> mm-hmm. you? No. <laughs> <laughs> is, 
is there anything that would be though? Like, is there anything I can do? I don't know. I've, I just yes. something. You can love your son. You can yeah. turn yourself into a beacon of love that is steady mm-hmm. and secure, no matter what's happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess it's just that if if these tumors are being called caused by something else, the fact that it's genetic, it's like I struggle with it psychologically to to know how to just even think about it. I, I don't even I don't even know how to answer that question, but it's just. Yeah, I guess. Well, I think you're thinking of genetic as your fault, and what they mean by genetic is it's it's a glitch in the genes. Right. It really doesn't have anything to do with you or the dad, really. It's not hereditary. It is sometimes, but then sometimes it's not. It's like neither he nor his dad have it, so it, it was just something that happened but it's hard I was 40 when I had him so it's and even though the doctors have told me like it had nothing to do with your age when you had him I it's and I it's not even a conscious thought Susan it's just something I can recognize that is an unhealthy thought pattern that I have where I I want to blame myself not unhealthy but it gets in the way of your love right it just gets in the way of your love doesn't it yep (laughs) Because <laughs> when that comes up, your love goes down. Yeah. And what you want to do here is to devote yourself mm-hmm. to love. Mm-hmm. What better purpose could any of us have than to devote ourselves to love? So true. Thank you. So when those guilt-ridden thoughts come up, you ask yourself, mm-hmm. does this make me more loving? Am I feeling more love right now? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is yes, then keep beating yourself up. And if the answer is no, then mm-hmm. cut it out. Mm-hmm. Okay. In fact, what I suggest is that you have a guilt trip book. <laughs> and you can write all your guilt trips in the book. But once you write them in the book, you are never again allowed to think them. Mm-hmm. I caused this great. horrible thing to happen to my son. You write it in your book. And that's it. Mm-hmm. You can read that book anytime you don't want to, but you can never again think that. Mm-hmm. Now, ban from your thought. Okay? Okay. And anything okay. else you want to ban from your thought, you write it in the book where it's safe and secure. You can always get to it. It's still yours. You have access to it, but it doesn't mm-hmm. live in your brain anymore. Mm-hmm. There's, a, you know, there's a limited real estate there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm a writer, so that's perfect. Excellent. Can I share one one more thing? Please. So I wanted to share this. Um, I think, you know, maybe some of your listeners might be interested in this. Um, I was told before I had him that I had less than 1% chance of of conceiving a child because I, I was told I had premature ovarian failure. <laughs> um after conceiving naturally, I, I mean, I, I had a, 
I, I conceived and then I had a, as a surprise and then I had a miscarriage and, um, and then they told me I had less than 1% chance of conceiving again based on, you know, two, two blood tests that I didn't, you know, I had them because of the miscarriage. And, um, and then within a few months, you know, I was doing nourishing herbal infusions and yoga and all kinds of things, but who knows, who knows what, but I just, I became pregnant and I had a healthy pregnancy and besides this genetic condition, he's, he's wonderful. And so I just wanted to share that with any, anyone else that might be going through that. But I have to Oh, go. that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You're welcome. Okay. And what's your oh, son's yeah. name? Oh, Amelia. Amelia. So we hear him in the background, yes? Yeah, he just came home. I need to go. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Thanks okay. for your call. Thanks for sharing so much. You're welcome. Right. Good blessings. Good night. All righty. Everyone listening, we've got about nine minutes before our guest is scheduled to join us. So if you've got a question for Susan this evening, you'll need to press one so that we can see our hands raised in the queue. Um, I've not seen any hands. We do have some um, email questions. All right, then. Let's see what we have in the email. All right. Um, let's see. Hi, Susan. My question is not so much about health, but I hope you will consider responding anyway. I have an immensely difficult time making decisions. This can be decisions about anything from the life-changing, but most especially the mundane, everyday stuff, like picking a place to go for dinner, which detergent to buy, which socks and fabrics to wear, colors to paint, house, phone to buy, any decision paralyzes me with all the over-consideration, I find myself stuck going over and over. Also, once I've made a decision, I have a tendency to go back over my choices again and again and usually find myself ruminating about what I was thinking or wasn't thinking when I decided, or I will play out in my head what might have happened or might have been if I had chosen a different chosen differently. All this is making me more frustrated and crazy. Please give me your wisdom on how I can get comfortable making decisions and living with the decisions I make. Many thanks. I think she needs unshakable self-love. So I hope she's listening, and I hope she continues to listen as uh, Misha comes to tell us about that unshakable self-love on perhaps a more mundane level. What I suggest for decision-making is a coin. And you decide ahead of time that heads are yes and tails are no, or heads are right and tails are left. If you have to do it, you make a little chart that you carry in your pocket so you know what your coin is going to be. And you need to make a decision, should it be this detergent or that, right? This detergent is heads, that detergent is tails. You flip the coin, you get tails, and you say, but I don't want to buy that detergent. Well, guess what? You just made a decision. Buy the other one. The coin is not telling you what to do. It's helping you know what you want. The world is your oracle, according to Judith Lester. And... It is, isn't it? 
Are you looking for the charm in your life? There's always charm in your life. So instead of saying, which detergent should I get based on, well, what are we basing it on? Let's base it on charm. What's charming to you? What interests you? What makes you smile? One of the exercises that Annie Sprinkle in, had us engage in when she was teaching sacred sex here at the Wise Woman Center was that we had to make a list of ten things that we really enjoyed and they needed to be fairly simple things. Like, number one on my list of things that I enjoy is petting small, warm, furry things, right? Bunny rabbits, cats, small dogs, even goats count. And after we had that list of ten things, we were to promise ourselves that we would do at least two of those things every day. What a wonderful commitment to make to oneself. First of all, to actually take the time to list the things that you enjoy. To take a look at that and then commit to yourself that you're going to do those things. One of the funner things that I did was to uh, take a course in laughter meditation. And we learned to, uh, with Montauk Chia, and we learned to laugh in every single organ of our body. Laugh, you know, to laugh in your liver, to laugh in your heart, right? to laugh in your intestines. It's such a, a, a non-adult thing to do. And we know that children laugh and chortle and are filled with glee, and I don't seem to, to lose it a lot. So I really um, knew that it was important for me to... Uh, give myself training in laughter and finding the laughter. I hope some of these things will help you the next time you need to make a decision. And is Misha with us yet? Yeah, she has joined us. That's exactly what I was hoping for so that we can move right in to what I think this woman needs more than anything, which is unshakable self-love. Risha Hopkins has been a pioneer in the field of female consciousness and sound healing for nearly 30 years. She's a six-times best-selling author, has made multiple television appearances, and is featured in the documentary When Sparks Ignite. Misha's mystical initiations in female and male sacred energy inspire her to further personal and planetary healing through consciousness of all. Having healed from both chronic and incurable conditions, Misha believes in each person's innate ability to heal and to awaken into the life of their dreams. Welcome to the show. So glad you're with us. I'm so glad to be here with you, Susan. And, and I'm loving your discussion. I'm loving this about how to make decisions. It's powerful. <laughs> <laughs> you just need unshakable self-love to make decisions, right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh, and I love what you shared. It, it's so wonderful, isn't it, when we let our minds 
focus on joy and having fun and the delight of life and let those worrying thoughts take a little nap for a while. You know, they can just get on overdrive sometimes and they need to rest. So tell us about unshakable self-love. How did you find it and how did you use it? Well, unshakable self-love for me was the result. It still is. It's still an ever, ever constant um, opportunity, shall we say, to be mindful that that opportunity exists always for all of us. And uh, for me, it all started with a mystical initiation in Egypt when I was there. With, if you can imagine, Susan, 300 psychics and healers on three ships going up the Nile. Oh, my gosh, 300 people. Oh, wow. 300. Oh, my gosh. And we were all pretty in tune. And, of course, the land of Egypt, just that ancient wisdom that's there and still kept alive by the, the people who live there. So it was pretty common every day to hear about people's amazing moments of awakening. And uh, the one that touched me deeply for all my life was a time when I was sitting in the cabin on the ship by myself. My roommate was out. And all of a sudden, um, Susan, if you can imagine, everything just went dark, completely dark. I was not in the darkness. I was the darkness. And it was one of the most beautiful experiences in my life. Because this wasn't the way that we read about darkness or we've learned about darkness, that darkness is bad and evil and all these interesting human constructs, things that we've created darkness to be. It wasn't that at all. Um, it was absolute stillness and love and this sense of everlasting love. It doesn't end. It doesn't go away. It is. And so are we. Cool, I call it, receptive. Call it the deep and nourishing dark. Yes. Yes. And I think of it as the womb of creation. All creation comes from this incredible space. It's also called yin energy or feminine energy. Um, it's been written about in many of the major um, religions and spiritual practices, this acknowledgement that life comes from this still, cool, dark Nourishing is exactly right. Nourishing all accepting space. And I was in that space for 24 hours. Totally loved, totally loving. Um, It's a very gentle love. It's not the blissful, ecstatic love that comes with um, light, white light, consciousness. It is a very still, quiet love. And it is, in my way of understanding it, unshakable and we all get to have sweet moments of realizing we are that unshakable love we come from that unshakable love and that it's available to us as we enter into our own stillness as we quiet down thank you for that wonderful question we quiet down that busy worrying mind When that part of our mind quiets down, what's left, what remains, what is, what always has been, 
is that beautiful state of love that is totally accepting you as you are. And so because of that very profound experience and then later an initiation, several initiations in white light energy, which is very masculine, blissful, ecstatic, generous, wants to just, it just kind of is this um, explosive energy. It's so, so powerful. And it too is an energy of just unshakable love. Nothing is going to stop the presence of that love. We may forget it for a while, but it is always existing. So in that beautiful balance of yin and yang energy, um, I was so blessed to experience these states of unshakable self-love, and I've made it my life's commitment to um, help people remember remember that within themselves, those states of unshakable self-love. Oh, how absolutely wonderful. What are some of your favorite ways of helping people find and accept unshakable self-love? What I find very often, Susan, as I'm working with women, and most of my clients are women, is that many of us come to the desire for love out of the pain that we're experiencing and a great deal of emotional trauma for many of us and traumas that have occurred between the time that we came into the womb until we were, say, six or seven years old, and they set up patterns for our life. So one of the blessings in my life is the privilege to teach practices that are over a thousand years old that are rooted in feminine energy and feminine consciousness. And one of those practices we call the holding. And holding is a way of approaching meditation in deep compassion for the nature of the experience you are having in the moment. And if we're, I'm going to play with worry a little bit. If worry is what is up for me, then my practice is to sit still in compassion for the worry itself. Not to try to change it or make it go away. And the reason I don't try to change it is this. It's connected to a little girl who felt she had to worry or was taught she had to worry as a way to try to navigate very difficult emotional situations. And so I wouldn't want to deny a little girl who is worrying, but rather if I'm loving her as she is with her right, her right to worry, that it's okay to have that desire not make it wrong, but love it, what I find and what so many of the beautiful women I get to work with find is that in that acceptance, in that presence, and in that compassion, the, the patterned behavior starts to unwind and unravel. And as it does, what's left is that beautiful silence I was talking about, that the nurturing silence, as you called it, so beautiful. Yes, and that's deep, deep, nourishing 
dark that is that is always there, but that we have been taught to fear. I don't know if you were listening into the show when I remarked that so many people take an adversarial stance toward their bodies. Oh yes. Oh right? yeah, we want to their bodies cut off we're the out stuff to get them, and they have to they have to fight. And what you're proposing is very radical, because what you're saying is, don't fight, accept. Mm-hmm. Be That's right. And willing, we... be willing to let your body be right, and go along with it, and see what happens. Yes, and we actually have experiences in our lives that show us what does happen when we accept. Now, accept doesn't mean this is, I, I have to live with this. That's not what it, or that, that I have to surrender it to it being this way forever. I have to give up. That's not what acceptance is. Acceptance is lovingly acknowledging that it's there for a reason. It's a reason. Yes. You may not remember why, but there's a reason. And therefore, I accept that it's here. And so think about a time. If we think about a moment when someone was in your life and you were sharing something that was painful and difficult for you. And they listened. They didn't judge you. They didn't tell you what you should do. They didn't give you advice you didn't ask for. They listened. And what happens to our bodies when somebody listens like that, we start to relax. Our shoulders get easy. We sink in a little bit into our bodies. Our faces relax. Because we've been accepted where we are. And the moment you feel it, like, whoa, they got me, that moment you're reborn. There's a part of you that goes, you know, I I think I'd be okay with this changing. (laughs) I would be okay. Yes. Here's some advice here. You know, it's all right. We know what happens. Yeah, with acceptance, the door opens. What an absolutely beautiful way to put it. I have articulated the wise woman tradition as a tradition which heals by nourishing, and I say that there are three aspects to nourishing. Certainly what we put in our mouths, also simple ritual, but perhaps the most profound of all the nourishments is to be heard. Mm-hmm. That's so true. It is so true. And Susan, I read some of your earliest work when it came out, and you have been a voice for deeper truth for so long, and you have been so dedicated. And so when you speak to what we need as nourishment, I know that it comes from years and years and years of experience and years of self-love, that those things we do to love ourselves that are transforming the way that we're experiencing life. And I I have to thank you for being such a strong, clear voice for us. It's it's a privilege to get to sit and chat with you today about this beautiful space, right, that we in a woman's journey come to find. for me to see how you're taking it and manifesting it and um, bringing it into women's lives because Mm -hmm. it's it very much is a transmission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and there's this wisdom that we as women 
came here to awaken on the planet at this time, this feminine consciousness. And most women are so very much aware of that if we're on a conscious journey. And it's our privilege and our opportunity to experience what it is that we are awakening because as we experience it, it is awakening on the planet. And it begins Mm -hmm. in that commitment to self-love, the the part of us that says, I don't think I've known love, or I don't think I've known the depth of love Nisa and Susan are talking about, or I can't imagine nourishing myself in that way, and saying, you know what, I haven't experienced it yet. That is my unknown, but I am going to stay true to a dedication to experiencing that until it happens. And it does. And it's that deep dedication that makes the difference, that willingness to stay with it, stay with the intent, stay with the desire until it simply must become because of the depth of your commitment. And that's where you offer such important help to women. Yeah, and you know, Susan, it was born out of my pain, as so many great things are, right? We, we struggle. And I, I shared this you story regularly. You were diagnosed with an incurable condition? Yeah, actually, before, yes, yes, yes. And I had been seeing doctors for seven years, and I was in my 20s. Just to give you all some perspective, I'm in my 60s now, so I'm in my 20s, and my body is aching. I, um, my face is breaking out like I'm a 15-year-old girl. My husband can't touch me because it, my skin is so sensitive. My female organs, just my whole body aches, right? And at that time, endocrinology was not as far along as it is now. I had been to doctor after doctor for seven years, had been referred to specialists who wouldn't even see me. Nobody, nobody could tell me what was going on with my body. Nobody. So I'm standing in front of the mirror. I'm looking at this woman who's about to go out and go shopping with a girlfriend, and I don't feel like doing anything. I'm depressed. I'm upset. I look at her, and I don't know why it came over me in that moment. It was my moment, and I looked at her, tears streaming down her face, and it said, I don't care what it takes. I don't care if I have to do it myself. I am going to heal. I'm going to heal. And that's it. I'm not accepting anything else. I am going to heal. And I dried up my tears. I finished getting dressed. I dressed. I went out to the car where my girlfriend was waiting. She said, how are you doing? And I said, not so good. I'm depressed. My body aches. And she picked up from there, Susan, and started telling me my symptoms one after another. My mouth is open. And I said, how did you know? She said, Misa, it's a hormonal imbalance. And she said, there is a doctor one hour from you that is world-renowned and has treated women with issues even more extreme than yours. He's treated them successfully. Here's his name. Here's his number. Go see him. We are talking to like... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Five minutes from the time I was looking in the mirror, I have... The answer, you know, the 
We all live in charmed lives. We do. We do. And there's something that happens when we put our stake in the ground, right? And we say, not I wish, not I hope, not I, I, I'm asking and begging. Not I'm I'm trying, but I'm doing it. (laughs) Not I'm trying. It is going aloud. And sure enough, he was the one who was able to help me heal. And he was. I was producing as much testosterone as a teenage boy. So my whole life has been this journey of, the balance of feminine and masculine energy from the physical in my body to the mystical, this balance of these energies. And fortunately, Susan, I had sense enough to um, actually start doing some deep feminine work because I asked an important question. I said, why has my body broken faith with my femininity? And then I asked a more important question. And that is, how do I restore it? And I started doing the deep feminine work that many of us know, right? The circles wow. and retreats wow. and the inquiry and their deep emotional body healing for a couple of years, a few years. I finally was strong enough and I had the memory that I'd been sexually abused when I was about four years old. And at that time, in my little mind, I made a brilliant decision. I decided it wasn't safe to be a woman. So at the time, my husband and I are talking about having children. My body started to shut down because it's safer to be a man and to be a woman. So my precious little mind at four years old had come up with a way to save me. And interestingly enough, when it started to play out, and this is going back to what I said at the very beginning, we don't want to cut those parts of ourselves off. The part of me that needed to feel safe was important and fundamental to my healing. And trying to cut off or tell myself, no, you're safe, you don't need to do any work on this, any, all those things we do that dismiss, if I had, and I did, try to dismiss the need to be safe was like cutting off my four-year-old little girl. She needed to feel safe. I needed to feel safe. And when we did that deep inner work and I was safe, then I was fine. The healing went deep. When you are willing to be the adult that you've grown up to be mm-hmm. and to say to that little girl, hi, I've grown up to be an adult who can take care of you. Exactly. You don't have exactly. to take care of yourself anymore. I'm going to do it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will and, keep and you it, safe. And it really, really works because... I was taught to call it the compulsion to recreate and overcome your childhood hurts. Mm-hmm. And the only way out is by completely giving up. Mm-hmm. You will never win with those childhood hurts, but you can take care of the child you were mm-hmm. right now. You can Not then, exactly. but right now you can take care. 
yeah, you can surrender to the love you wanted then. And the respect yes. or feeling heard or feeling safe, whatever flavor of love it was, we can surrender right into that now and let her feel it. And once she feels it, and a great, great teacher explained to me, this is done in the inner world. This isn't about giving yourself stuff you didn't have as a child and giving yourself things as an adult. That won't do it. It's feeling the love you didn't get to feel then that heals her or him. That's yeah. the great gift. Yeah. Yeah. So hey, take, a moment here, take a moment here to let uh, women know how to get in touch with you, because I can feel that there are women going, I want to I work with, with Misha, how to get in touch with her. Ah, simple. Go to the website, Misa, M-I-S-A, Hopkins, H-O-P-K-I-N-S, MisaHopkins.com. Oh, and so there's a, a free gift of the holding that's there. So you can download an audio version of the holding and um, experience it for yourself. Go into that deep. Hold, holding is one of your books? Holding is the, is the meditation practice that I teach. The first practice <sighs> of me that I teach women to do to go into deeper states of compassion. Wonderful, wonderful. Right. Well, what haven't we talked about yet that you want to be sure to talk about tonight? Oh, thank you for that. That's a great question. Um, the, the one thing that I like to encourage women to look at is that there are core, core things we are seeking that help us heal the pain of our past. And one is to develop a new sense of safety. And we talked about one way to do that. The other is to develop a deeper sense of trust, and that's with your own intuition. And I loved that you suggested the coin. What a fun and playful way to start connecting with your own intuitive wisdom and the wisdom of the universe. Because as we sink into that, we tend to feel more at ease with the choices we are making for ourselves and on our own behalf. And the other is our empathy. Um, so often when we've experienced trauma, our empathy is geared toward pain rather than pleasure. And, and I really want you all to hear the beautiful advice that Susan was giving because you were offering a redirect of that energy toward the pleasurable part of decision-making. But there's a joy that comes in decision-making. And when we've been very oriented toward pain, it takes a little work, a little coaching ourselves to get that moved over to a place where we're focusing on our joy, our beauty, love, the things that are special to us, and even discovering what those are. Love the list. That was powerful. That list of ten things. Great advice. Because now my focus is in a new direction and your empathy starts to orient toward pleasure and love. So those are three things that we can watch and we can be attentive to. If we're struggling, we are probably over-empathizing with pain. If we are struggling, we are probably having a difficult time trusting the divine or the universe or ourselves or other people 
and we need a deeper trust with ourselves and a new relationship to love and that safety that we absolutely have to have as and focus attention to being and creating experiences inwardly so that the inner child is safe. As she is safe, intuition rises, empathy moves toward love. It sounds so easy. It does, doesn't it? And ultimately it is. Ultimately it is, but it is so you have to fight yourself every step of the way. And that's partly because the brain has evolved to preferentially remember the bad things. Yeah, that's right. It's not that's like right. you're some screw-up that you just remember the bad things. Your brain evolved to do that to protect you. And you really mm-hmm. have to learn how to not do it. Yeah, that's right. We really become our own coaches and advocates. We put our stake in the ground. We choose, I'm going to experience happiness. I'm going to experience joy. I'm going to experience health. Whatever it is, we choose it consciously. And then we keep coaching ourselves and training ourselves to a place where we experience more and more and more of that that we desire. And it is a journey. It's in my experience, it is the sacred journey. Healing and awakening are on the same continuum. So as we are healing, we are awakening to divine love. Oh, that is so beautifully put. Thank you for reminding us of that. Mm. So important to remember that uh, mm. as, you, uh, as you so beautifully just put it it's a continuum it's not just this piece and then this piece and then this piece yeah yeah it's a powerful journey have you ever heard of e.o wilson no i haven't e.o wilson is considered to be perhaps one of the smartest people ever much smarter than einstein most people haven't heard about him because he spent most of his life studying and writing about ants, which, let's face it, most of us really were just not that interested in them. Thank you very much. Um, but when he got to his 80th birthday, he said, you know, I think I'm going to write like a, a general book because there's some really important things that I need to share with people. And um, what was in this book was fascinating to me because he proposed that balance was antithetical to life. In fact, he goes, in fact, he goes so far as to say that when there is balance, it is impossible for there to be life. If we think about the very, very early universe, right around the time of the Big Bang, then we know that the Big Bang covered the entire space-time continuum with hydrogen atoms, perfectly balanced. And we would still be right there if it all stayed perfectly balanced. There was a perturbation. 
and the perturbation caused a dynamic disequilibrium, which caused a swirl, which caused the hydrogen to clump together to form stars, which eventually matured, burst, and as the cycle repeated, we finally got enough elements to form planets, and from planets to form us, and we live on a planet that is not balanced. Its axis is not up and down. And he says, we will never find life on any planet whose axis is up and down. Balance itself is death. Life is dynamic disequilibrium. Mm. Mm. It's reminding me, you're sharing this, of one of the practices from my ancestors in which we are present to what is happening in the now and we consciously enter into the chaos of our own minds and beliefs and feelings, into the absolute chaos. And on the other side of the chaos is the resolution, that sense of peace with I am as I am. And that chaos is fundamental to the transformation. It must happen. It has to be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And isn't it interesting how we try to avoid it? We keep trying to avoid it. And it's actually the catalyst for new life and new creation. Mm. So to learn... And you would know... To, to learn to, to not seek balance, but to find that other thing that is the dynamic disequilibrium. It's been likened to riding a surfboard, right? If you're on a surfboard and you're balanced, you're off. No, I didn't know that I've never been on a surfboard. You have to be huh. constant moving and shifting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to always be in dynamic disequilibrium because you are on the surface of the ocean, which is in dynamic disequilibrium. Oh, I am so loving this conversation. I'm getting some pieces to take back to my students now. This is awesome. The women who are <laughs> studying with me. Yes, yes, yes. And and the and there's an ancient wisdom that knew this. Um, my Cherokee teacher talked about the natural. It's, it's in the position of the south on the medicine wheel that I was working with. There are many medicine wheels. I don't want to pretend this is like for all medicine wheels. But that's, what, the, that's what I tell people. say they don't get your panties in a knicker. If somebody tells you something <laughs> free about a medicine wheel that I'm telling you, there's all kinds of different ones. Just let it be. That's right. They're all different. <laughs> They're all different. And in this one, the South, that would, would normally be associated with the emotional body. The way that it was described was called being in the natural, the natural. And I've always appreciated that because when I look at nature, there is this complete cacophony of disorder. If we look at all of the trees and the branches of the trees and the way that they're growing, it's relaxing to know that there is this state of order and disorder at the same time. 
It's both. Dynamic and disequilibrium is what exactly, you Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's such exactly. a beautiful phrase. And that that is the natural state. And that, that is, is where we feel that we belong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So back to your question. And we could, question we could go on talking and talking and talking because I'm totally enjoying this, as you are too. But, oh, dear, it's blog talk show, and that means, blam, they are going to slam that door on us. Got so it. So I want you to tell people once more how to get in touch with you. NisaHopkins.com. My first name is spelled M as in mother, I-S as in Saturday, A, NisaHopkins.com. And thank you, Susan. Oh. What a great conversation. I'm so grateful. Great conversation. And, you know, I imagine that we are reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients. So mm. I want to thank you for the threads that you are adding to this undertaking that we are all doing. So important and such beautiful and vibrant threads that you've added. And, Sarah Ellen, thank you as always, for helping me to restore herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine. And thank you, listeners, for all you are doing, too. We'll be back with you next week, same time, for lots more green blessings. Good night, everybody. <laughs> 